You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. And welcome to another edition of the Domecast, our political podcast. We look backwards and forwards on all things in North Carolina government and politics. We thank you for listening. I'm Andy Curlis with the News and Observer. We'll hear from Colin Campbell of the News and Observer, from Ben Brown of the Insider, and uh, later, of course, even Lynn Bonner and Taylor Knopf will be here. We have a good show for you. We'll uh, hear from Rob Christensen on the Senate races. We'll, I'm sure, uh, I imagine we'll touch on uh, the news related to Senator Fletcher Hartzell, uh, a voter ID uh, a change was passed, so a lot going on uh, this past week. But, of course, the big news was the budget in the Senate, which uh, passed. And before we get much farther, let's listen to the leader of the Senate, Phil Berger, uh, talking about what he thought was the right number as the Senate adopted a budget this week in Raleigh. And we'll be back in one second. Let's listen to Phil Berger. This budget grows spending, but it only grows it by 2%. Well, 2% is a lot of money when you're talking about real dollars on a $20 billion budget. Uh, but 2% uh, is more than we spent last year, and 2% is enough to cover uh, the growth in the state and population and, uh, and with reference to, uh, to inflation. So let's talk about the budget. We have with us Colin Campbell of the News and Observer and Ben Brown of the Insider. The budget, of course, in the Senate uh, this week and dominating the headlines uh, for for good reason. And so, Colin, tell us, uh, uh, we have a Senate budget now in place? Yes, the uh, final vote was taken on Thursday, so now the Senate has done their part and it goes back to the House for a concurrence vote, but I think it's uh, been made pretty clear from the folks in the House that the concurrence vote will be a no, and it'll go into conference committee for and, quite some time. And Yeah, and so really um, a lot of issues to work out there. Uh, tell me, first of all, how, I mean, what are you hearing about how long is this going to take, and just you know, what are we to expect? Well, I think we're not going to have a budget by uh, June 30th. We've heard from a lot of folks, uh, most notably uh, House Speaker Tim Moore said this week that uh, he expects that some sort of uh, concurring resolution uh, will need to happen or a continuing resolution will need to happen uh, in order to keep government running after July 1. Um, so we'll see how long of a continuing resolution they, they have to put out there. I heard from one uh, member of the House who thought that uh, – session will go to Labor Day this year. And a lot of that um, is not so much due to the budget differences. Uh, I think most uh, members of the House and Senate recognize that uh, the final budget numbers-wise will probably come out to about a 3% spending increase, a pretty standard compromise between the the 2% uh, increase in the Senate and the 5% increase in the House budget. Uh, The big problem will be the policy issues. The Senate has decided to put a lot of their big uh, policy proposals into the budget, a big sales tax redistribution that would uh, shift a lot of revenue from urban counties to rural counties. They've put in a big Medicaid reform plan where the House has its own Medicaid reform plan it's working on, uh, and a number of uh, corporate and personal income tax changes, all of which are going to be bones of contention between the House and the Senate, and all of which are going to be hashed out in these closed-door budget meetings over the next few weeks, months. Medicaid is also a 
one that's in there? Yeah, Medicaid reform, and, and uh, that's something where Senator Senate Leader Phil Berger has told us that uh, he feels like it needed to be in the budget because it's just not gotten done in past years. And by putting it in the budget, that sort of forces a deadline and forces an agreement on Medicaid that's been elusive the past couple sessions. And Ben Brown, uh, obviously there are a lot of big issues. One of them that you've been following closely uh, relates to uh, how sales taxes uh, are treated for nonprofits. Help me understand what's going on with that. And I, I, I know that, that there's a lot of chatter about that one also being a, a really important issue that the two sides need to figure out. What's, right. what's going on there? Yeah, there was a pretty well-attended press conference this week. I think it was Wednesday on this provision in the Senate budget to reduce the cap on sales tax refunds that nonprofits could get. And currently, it's a, it's a pretty high ceiling. $45 million a year in state and local sales taxes can be, re, can be refunded per nonprofit. And as far as I know, not even the biggest nonprofits pay more than that. So $45 million is arguably a, a pretty comfortable cap. Well, the, the way the Senate budget works out is it would drop that cap to about $1 million. That, that's, that's about what a nonprofit would pay in sales taxes if it spent $15 million bucks, which is how the Senate proposal reads, $15 million in expenditures. So you might think, well, $15 million, that's a lot of money. That's still a pretty high threshold. But if you think about who fits into the nonprofit category, you know, there are hospitals, churches, private universities, you know, the YMCA and other big names. And if they have big capital projects where they're buying all kinds of materials and building new facilities and so forth, well then, you know, yeah, they might pass that $15 million in spending and pay well beyond the proposed cap of, uh, of, of $1 million in sales taxes. So that essentially means going from paying ultimately no sales taxes now to potentially paying a lot. So these big nonprofits say that it's going to cramp their services. They'll have to either, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, revise their budgets or try harder uh, to raise funds, or just pull back on the services they offer to make make themselves sustainable. So Senator Bob Rucho on the Senate floor this week, he said that that plan protects the small nonprofits. They're they're not going to have to worry about spending more than a million in sales taxes, but the bigger ones would pay their fair share to the state. That's how he put it. Uh, at this press conference, standing with the nonprofits were a number of House members, including Representative David Lewis, who, of course, is part of the leadership team, as well as Jason Sane and a few others. And they say that the House isn't adopting the same philosophy that the Senate approved. So they want to work on this. And Lewis made the point that if you know nonprofits can't fill needs, then it might have to fall to the government to fill those needs. So some competing philosophies within the same party, an interesting story. And they're also concerned really quick uh, about a cap uh, to itemize deductions that nonprofits worry are going to remove the incentive to donate to charities, and that that'll affect them pretty hard too financially. So that's the story. Yeah, and so there's a lot of there will be a lot of uh, special interests there uh, lobbying. Yeah, yeah universities, that. and that, that's kind of some of the, the the back and forth hallway talk too. Is this is this them going after universities or hospitals or or, or what have you? Um, there will definitely be some hard special interests uh, voicing their opinions. Interesting. Another uh, big voice in this budget uh, process will be on the education side. Uh, Colin Campbell, to, uh, you know, education always a, an issue, a broad topic. Uh, give me a flavor of how things were playing out on the Senate side uh, as they tried to close in on a budget vote this past week. Yeah. Well, the big issue on the education side, and this is going to be uh, probably a fault line with the House when the uh, negotiations begin, is on teaching assistance. Uh, should teacher assistance be uh, funded at their current level so that everyone who's got jobs now, all those positions stay intact for the next school year? 
or should the uh, funding for that be cut and instead put that money into classroom teachers, uh, in effect uh, lowering the class sizes in uh, elementary grades, I think it's kindergarten through grade three. Uh, so that'll be a big fault line. And then you were hearing from the Democrats at the same time who were saying, why does this have to be a choice? Can't we find the money to not only reduce class sizes by hiring more teachers, but to keep the existing number of teacher assistants in classrooms to, to help out and, and do what teaching assistants do? Uh, so that ended up being the, the big uh, point of debate uh, as this went through the Senate. You know, there are lots of uh, things the Democrats could have chosen to criticize. They zeroed in on the education thing, uh, and their plan was to take out the corporate income tax cuts that are already scheduled to uh, go into effect when uh, certain revenue triggers are hit and use the uh, additional revenue uh, by keeping the, the corporate income tax rate at what it is right now uh, and putting that into the classroom. So that was three or four different amendments that uh, Democrats had proposed. Uh, got voted on and, of course, got voted down. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, this will be all very interesting to see how it plays out. I think it's fair to say we really uh, aren't sure on this one whether the House is going to prevail or the Senate will prevail or they'll both come out uh, saying they're winners. And, of course, we haven't even talked today about Governor Pat McCrory. As we head out into a break, let's let's hear from a little bit of flavor of that floor debate uh uh, this is uh, Floyd McKissick, a, a Democrat from Durham, talking on that, that education issue. And uh, so we'll, we'll head out listening to him, and then we'll be back with uh, Rob Christensen on the U.S. Senate races. There's certainly portions of the budget bill which intriguing, things that I find that I could probably support. But I, what I do find deeply disturbing are some aspects of it that – I think really since North Carolina perhaps in the wrong direction and perhaps even with some of the policies that are good policies, they might have unintended consequences. And when I say that, we've heard a lot today about education. We've heard about reducing the student-pupil ratio in our classrooms. I heard Senator, Senator Suchek talk about hiring an extra 3,200 teachers. The thing that we have to think about, if we're really going to accomplish that, we're really going to do all those things. Do we have enough classroom capacities in all of our elementary schools to house all these new teachers? This is a guided meditation on parenting. Find a relaxed position to let go of the time you left your daughter's blouse in the dryer too long and it shrunk four sizes, or when you donated her private diary to the public library. Deep breaths. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. There are thousands of teens in foster care who don't need perfection. They need you. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. And we're back on the Domecast, our weekly look at politics and government in North Carolina. I'm Andy Curlis with the News and Observer. We're here with Rob Christensen, the political columnist uh, for the News and Observer. Uh, we've just been talking about the Republican uh, convention and, of course, a lot of attention on the presidential race. In North Carolina, we have a upcoming a Senate race. And, of course, Rob, uh, Senate races in North Carolina are always competitive. Do we expect anything different uh, with Senator Richard Burr, uh, the incumbent? And, of course, we don't know who he'll be running against. But we'll, let's look ahead a little bit on the Senate race. And what do we expect uh, to happen there? Well, we don't know who's going to run against uh, Senator Richard Burr. 
uh, of course, the Demo all the Democratic powers that be in Washington and elsewhere hope that Kay Hagan will run because she lost a very, very narrow race against Tom Tillis in, in last year. In fact, it was the closest Senate race in the country. But what's interesting is there's a new survey that has come out by a University of Minnesota political science uh, uh, professor. And what he did was he looked at all the Senate races in the country in every state since 1990. And what he found, not, which probably won't surprise too many people who follow politics in North Carolina, is that North Carolina has the closest, since 1990, has had the closest Senate races of any state in the country. And, and, and far closer, for example, than any of our, our neighboring states like Virginia or South Carolina or Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's uh, in fact, the last time we, there was actually a blowout in terms of a Senate race, it was 1974. Uh, Democrat Attorney General, it was an open seat. It was right after Watergate, which was, you know, the Republicans took a, a lick in there. And so Democratic Attorney General Robert Morgan beat uh, a Republican bill, uh, Republican businessman Bill Stevens, 1974. That's the last time we had a really lopsided Senate race. So that's really interesting because it suggests that that uh, no matter who runs, we're likely to have a competitive race. If history is is any indicator. Now, what can we say about Rich, Senator Richard Burr uh, uh, prospects? Well, we can look at polling, and the polling shows that uh, his his number his favorability numbers are not, are pretty pretty mediocre right now. So he's you know he's got a favorability rating of about 35, unfavorable rating about 36. You know you really like if you're a politician you like your favorable ratings be in the 50 percent uh, uh, neighborhood, not not around 35. And so that's that's troublesome if you're if you're in the Richard Richard Burr camp. So uh, now Kay Hagan, who of course uh, lost or the Democrat who lost in the last. Uh, last uh, last election, this at this point in her, her last re-election that would be in June 2013, her numbers were, were about the same too. She was about uh, 45 favorable and 46 unfavorable. So she was about at the same point as Richard Burr was. Now, if you actually line up Richard Burr against prospective Democrats like Kay Hagan, like Senator Dan Blue, you know he's doing pretty well. He's defeating. He defeats them in, 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 in a, in a matchup match right now. But that was also true of Senator Kay Hagan two years ago. If you match her up against prospective Republican opponents like Tom Tillis or Greg Brandon, she was defeating them as well. Now, I think there's a couple of interesting things to think about, though, is that even though we have really, really close races in North Carolina, that doesn't mean that the state is perfectly balanced between Democrats and Republicans because there's been a general trend here is that voters, North Carolina voters, tend tend to vote Republican. They vote Republican more than they vote Democrat in Senate races. Just like in governor's races, they tend to vote Democrat more than Republican. Mm -hmm, in Senate races, they tend to vote Republican. So mm -hmm. there's usually an advantage to Republican. So it's not exactly equal. And I think Senator Burr, one of Burr's problems and the reasons his ratings are not as high as they've been is he does not have, I think, a very high public profile. So if you ask the person on the street, what is Senator Burr? What does he stand for? What do you think about him? I think, I don't think it's a, it's a bad thing People have a bad uh, identity. He doesn't have a bad identity. But they just can't connect him with anything. But now I think he's since the fact he's become chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, they might be able to identify him with with it with with something specific, and in an issue like intelligence, at a time when there's rising concern about 
terrorism in the Middle East, that could uh, certainly work to his advantage. Mm-hmm. National safety, of course, uh, was a, a campaign theme uh, at the end in the Hagan uh, Tillis race, and we would expect to see uh, that to, to reemerge. Of course, there's a long time between now and when that race will unfold. We hope to see here in the next month or two some more uh, clarity on the Democratic side, um, and then and then we'll see how that race begins to unfold. Well, I think I think the Democrats have got to uh, begin moving on this because uh, you know it's like uh, building a major Senate race, and and this would be a major Senate race because it would probably be one of the uh, key races in the country. Uh, it's like setting up a corporation, essentially. I mean, you're building a business. And so you just can't build it overnight. And so, I mean, it was $111 million was spent in, in, in last last time. And we, we would think that some some significant amount, if not, if not $111 million, something close to it would be spent again in, in 2016. So to do that, you have to... Uh, get out there early and raise lots of money, make lots of connections, move across the country. So the Democrat would have to begin doing that pretty soon. So we have to make a decision this summer. You can't wait but so long. Mm-hmm. Well, that will be interesting to watch. Let's go uh, take a break, and we'll be back in a moment with our headliners of the week. Organ donation is the gift of life. Now you can save your own life by agreeing to donate your organs when you die. How? Join Life Sharers. It's free. Visit lifesharers.org or call 888-ORGAN-88. Life Sharers puts organ donors first. As a member, this could save your life. Join Life Sharers today. It's free. Call 888-ORGAN-88 or visit lifesharers.org. And welcome back on the Domecast. We're now to a segment we call Headliners. Of the week, and we have with us uh, Colin Campbell and Ben Brown, of course, who you've already heard from. And joining us in a minute will be Lynn Bonner of the News and Observer and Taylor Knopf, also of the News and Observer. Let's start with Colin Campbell. Oh, let me remind everyone. So headliners of the week, I'll give each of our panelists 45 seconds, nominate and argue for a headliner of the week, and uh, if they don't make it in the time, I'll ring my bell, and we'll have some fun with this, and um, we'll sort it out at the end and, and, and pick one just for fun. So, Colin Campbell, tell me, who is your headliner of the week? Well, I'm going with uh, Reverend William Barber of the NAACP and the Moral Monday movement. Uh, he scored kind of a uh, coincidental victory this week. He got arrested at the legislature for uh, another occasion on Wednesday uh, for, during a voter ID protest, protesting the state's uh, new voter ID requirements. And then only one day later, uh, both uh, chambers pass a change to the voter ID law, essentially softening it so that you uh, if you don't have a photo ID, you can fill out a form, put in your date of birth and uh, last four digits of your social security number and still vote using a provisional ballot. So that's a big change and really weakens the uh, photo ID requirement. So it's a victory for him, even if he's not the reason the uh, folks in the legislature uh, passed that. It's likely more due to the lawsuits, but we'll we'll give this one to uh, Reverend Barber. Reverend William Barber, just on the number, Colin. Um, so that and of course, that was a very big story at the end of the week. 
was was and William Barber had been arrested uh, just the day before. Is that yeah, right? just yeah. the night before yeah. uh, his uh, first arrest in a, at least a year or two, I think, uh, him getting arrested himself. Wow. So okay, William Barber uh, nominee for headliner of the week. Let's go now to Ben Brown. Ben Brown of the Insider. Tell me, who is your headliner of the week? Okay, I'm going to go a little bit obscure. Um, I'll say Brad Hessel, who's... uh, I'm sorry, who? Brad Hessel. He's he's stepping down as the executive director of the State Libertarian Party. So there's a vacancy if you're interested in uh, that party affiliation. Hessel himself said that contributions to the party were up more than 80% in 2014, and they're looking good again this year. Um, he did come on at the start of 2014, so the Jones Street people maybe at least know the names Kimberly Reynolds or Todd Poole uh, from the Democratic and GOP parties, uh, but Brad Hessel doesn't make it into the headlines often, so I'm going to say him. Brad Hessel. If we're pronouncing his name Brad right. Hessel. H-E-S-S-E-L. The, he- the, the uh, retiring-slash-resigning uh, head of the Libertarian Party. Executive Very director. Good. Okay. Not, not to be oh, I'm sorry. Executive chairman, director. Okay. Yes. Headliner of the week. Okay. And let's go now to Lynn Bonner. Lynn Bonner, welcome to the Domecast. Thanks a lot. It's been Andy, a week. I've got a name you know pretty well. Senator Fletcher Hartzell is my nominee for Newsmaker of the Week. Uh, the Board of Elections forwarded a, ca- forwarded a case uh, concerning his campaign spending to local and federal prosecutors this week. Uh, Senator Hartzell has been uh, in the Senate 24 years, and the Board of Elections spent two years investigating his complex campaign finance reports. The board referral to prosecutors is noteworthy uh, since this is the first case the board constituted under Governor Pat McCrory has heard this kind of case, and it's been years since the board has held a hearing on improper campaign finance disclosures by a governor or legislator. Uh, Senator Hartzell put out a statement this week saying he has always been serious about filing his campaign finance laws, and he believed that his reports were um, complied with the law. But uh, board members observed that the hearing uh, at the hearing that um, Hartzell was carrying considerable debt on his personal credit cards when he used his campaign fund to make payments on those. I can't cut you off when you're giving a guy his defense, yeah. but <laughs> but uh, so I did not. Yeah. Fletcher Hartzell, yeah. uh, longest-serving senator uh, and uh, the first in a long time to have a uh, a case forwarded to prosecutors. Yes. Fletcher Hartzell, definitely a headliner of the week, um, and it will be interesting to see how that situation plays out. The Democrats, of course, called for him to resign. His statement uh, didn't address that, but he clearly is not planning to uh, resign at this stage and, and looks forward to uh, a process, he said, uh, to to answer any potential uh, further charges if, if that occurs. Now that leaves us with Taylor Knopf. Taylor, welcome to the Domecast. And so tell us, uh, Taylor of the News Observer, who is your headliner of the week? So I'm going to nominate Durham Democrat Senator Mike Woodard. Um, Senator Woodard uh, had kind of a win for the Democrats in the Senate this week during a milk-chugging contest against the House and he and two interns uh, won by a 14-second margin as they each went through two rounds of uh, eight-ounce milk. They actually had to suck it through a straw, though. They didn't chug it. So he had some great quotes for us. Um, He was chanting, suck, 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 and then victory, still champions at the end. So 
I think he had the most fun at the legislature this week. So, Senator Mike Woodard, uh, nominee for Headliner of the Week. Now, Taylor, I have to ask, uh, he brought some interns with him on the House side. Uh, were, was it Who was on the team there? Was it all representatives, or were there also interns chugging milk against uh, the senator there? Well, no, this is a point of contention, because the House has only won twice in 16 years, and the House followed the rules and brought all representatives. Oh, okay. so. there's a rule. Well, there is. I, okay. It appeared so. Um, the, de okay. or the Senate brought an intern last year as well. Okay, so, so. there have been interns in the past. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Well, this is the moment. Uh, I have to say <laughs> I have a soft spot for anyone who chugs milk in 100-degree heat on Jones Street. So we'll go with and – a, and, a and a rare win for a Democratic senator – uh, so we'll go, Taylor, with uh, Mike Woodard as the headliner of the week. And so let's find some audio from that. And as we head out, we thank you for listening to the Domecast. And we'll oh, I was sure my nominee would get it this week. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe next week, Lynn. There'll be other chances on that one, possibly. So we'll head out with uh, Mike uh, Woodard, Senator Mike Woodard, at the legislature, and we thank you for listening, and we will see you soon. Make up some ground there, guys. Come on, boys, we're the lead now. Keep it going, keep it going. Come on now. Suck, 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 suck. Come on. Come on, boys. There it is. All right. I'm not going to say anything. Come on, go. Victor and still champion, the Senate! You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.